Good afternoon, everyone. Sounds like we have power this week. That's good. Well, it looks like we have a lot of rain coming in toward the end of Sunday. So I guess that's a good thing out here. I'm I'm a little bit concerned in a I guess a human way. Uh, with as many wells as are being drilled in this valley right now, it's almost scary uh, because they're, these are the type of people that don't just take a drink and, and use water like they do in town. Uh, these are people that raise crops and have animals and use a lot of water. Uh, that might be something that once in a while we pray about, that God will continue to give us the amount of water we need because some of us grow some uh, gardens and pastures and so on as well. The water table has dropped somewhat. I measured it at only six or eight feet or so. But it stayed static for 20 years or more, uh, right where it was. And now it's dropped a bit. I, I do believe that when God led us to this property, he gave us enough water where we wound up to see us through. I think that was one of the prerequisites of uh, the land we got, was that it would have water. And I looked, and some of us looked, all over southern Utah, and being near the park, the land was extensive, and the water was as much as the land by water rights. Just unbelievably high, and still is. Cedar City is frankly running out of water. They're still building up there, but their water supply is going down very rapidly. I've told you of that, I think, some time back, uh, that I know a fellow who is a well driller, and he said when his grandfather uh, would put in a fence up in Cedar City, by the time he got to the bottom of a post hole, which is about two feet, more or less, uh, he hit water. And now you have to drill six or eight hundred feet up there a lot of times to get water. And then it comes in pockets. Uh, so they are very quickly outbuilding their water supply. And there are some of them in the authority position that are very, very worried about it. What are we going to do? Of course, a lot of them are counting on a water pipeline that's supposed to come from Lake Powell to St. George. Good luck on that one. Uh, Lake Powell getting empty. So we know these things are very close upon us, and I, it crosses my mind once in a while just to ask God to take care of us. He knows our needs before we ask, if you will, and sometimes I think, why should I pray about this, that, or the other thing when it's some of those things are written in stone, how they're going to happen, uh, but we don't know exactly, and even like a little child with his parents, uh, they know more than we do, and they get insecure and they have needs, so who do they come to? Daddy and Mommy to get their answers for their needs. And those parents generally already know what those needs are uh, before the child even comes and asks. Uh, they even, not only their needs, but their desires, they pretty well know uh, before the children ask. 
But you still like for them to come to you, don't you, and say, Daddy or Mommy, what about this, this, and that? Of course we do, because we're interested in their lives and interested in what's going on. And God doesn't tell us everything. He tells us an awful lot. But he doesn't give us every detail about everything. And I think it's wise to go before him and make our request known. That's clear throughout the Bible. I think David is the most prolific uh, writer on those terms. So many of the Psalms are in in themselves a prayer. So God knew his enemies. He knew all his problems. He knew where they were coming from. And yet David had a relationship with God where he would go and talk with him about those things. And that's what I'm projecting here is that we have that kind of relationship so that we can go and talk about the serious things of life with him, know he's hearing, and that there is a communication and relationship there that we're to be building. When we talk to him often about those things, uh, he doesn't like whiny prayers. Uh, oh God, give me this. Oh God, give me that. Where we've got the gimmies and our thoughts are self, uh, about self. Um, he even says in the sample prayer, it doesn't say my Father in Heaven, it says our Father in Heaven. So we should be giving concern for each other before God, as well as ourselves, or as much as ourselves. Love our neighbor as ourselves. And I imagine if someone wants to tally it up, I know who can, uh, the amount of prayers given on the earth what percentage would you guesstimate would be about self and my needs, my wants, my desires, my pain, my hurt? Uh, I bet it'd be way up there <laughs> about self rather than each other or overall needs for us all before our Father. I catch myself sometimes just saying, Father in heaven. And I caught myself on that a couple of days ago when I said, why didn't say I say our Father in heaven? That's what I should have opened the prayer with. Ours, not mine. Uh, you see what I mean. And I think you do. Anyway, be that as it may, I started with water, and, and I think for us to mention that once in a while is probably a good thing to say to God. Is please remember our water supply because... It's beginning to go down somewhat at least. I think this thing's all going to wrap up before it goes away anyway. I think he provided us enough. But still in all, on some level, it's a concern between him and us. So many things could be along those lines. Uh, just, I, I just calculated, I'll bet you don't even know how many hours there are in a week. I don't think about that ever. It's just a statistic I've never kept. I know how, I know there's 72 in three days, so it's pretty easy. 144 plus 24 is 168. Seems like kind of a strange number, doesn't mean anything that I know of. 168. But the reason I thought of it and calculated it was we spend about really an hour once a week discussing these words. 
one out of 168. And by the time you take out the song service at the beginning and so on, I usually don't start till at least 10 after and stop around 10 or 15 after the next hour. Sometimes uh, if I'm on something, it'll go a little longer than that, but not much more than an hour generally. So that's about all we get per week in exposure to formal training and teaching in God's Word. That's really not very much. Add in a few New Moon Bible studies and so on. So a lot of it's on you and me to be sure that we have enough time with God uh, in prayer and study and meditation and so on. And it's hard. Life is busy. You know, the hurrier I go, the behinder I get, it seems, is the way life goes in this world that Satan has set up. You used to could make a living and still take a nap in the afternoon. That's what Abraham did. That's when Christ and the angels came to visit him while he was having his siesta in the afternoon in the heat of the day. Uh, but he could get enough work done in other parts of the day that he could take some time off and still get things done. But uh, Daniel tells us that in the last days men will run to and fro over the face of the earth. Very busy, busy, busy. And that's where the world is today. Uh, going all over the place to accomplish whatever that is not lasting. So, we need to take time to be sure our relationship with God is good. What triggered that thought was I got a call just before I came over here from someone in a family that I don't trust their theology at all. Was a LeBaron, uh, who doesn't claim his dad, but he's unreligious, he's just as odd. Uh, but he wanted to know what we can all do to get together and help bring the kingdom of God. And I said, well, you're going to have to wait for Jesus Christ to come keep set up the kingdom of God because no man on this earth is going to do it and isn't capable of it. So I just, I didn't have a whole lot of patience with it. I, I mean, I, would, I said it in a more or less friendly term. But he thinks we can get together and garden properly and uh, get an economic system going. That's his main thing that he likes to bandy about is economic system based on God's way will save us. And it won't. <laughs> it won't. But uh, all we can do. And I told him that. He says, what can we do? I said, judgment has been passed on this country. I think it has in 2017. And now it's, the punishment is coming day after day, stronger and stronger, and it's going to crescendo. But it says, all you can do is keep the commandments. Oh, yeah, he says, that's what we got to do. And I just nearly bit my tongue and said, how are, you, how are you keeping the Sabbath today? That's, they'll say, keep the commandments, but they leave the Sabbath out. It's right there in the middle of them, is it not? Right there. That's the one they love to hate. And that's the one, he says, there in Exodus, is a sign between him and his people. Sunday is not a sign between God and people. Sunday is a sign between Satan and people. And that's the one they keep. We'll get to the sermon here eventually. 
one other point I wanted to mention in the news, though, is I saw an article that said that uh, Premier Xi, China, has signed a $30 billion agreement with the Saudis. This has been rumored for some time that they might try to enter BRICS, but they have now signed a trade agreement, and that agreement I did not get to read. You know why? Because when I clicked on it to open the article, it kept coming up that we cannot open this because it does, meet, does not meet protocols. In other words, it's censored. We do not want you to read this article. But the title told you enough. That's what we've picked up from here and there. There is a scripture, and I didn't have time to look it up, talks about oil being brought out of Egypt, uh, which could include all of Arabia, but uh, Egypt itself, a little country, has applied officially for membership in BRICS, and a lot of other countries are doing that. Now, I have said many, many times, and others have repeated it, and they, out away from here even, that the petrodollar is the key, and when it goes away, uh, the U.S. dollar is toast, and our economy is done. Now, we have attacked countries for trying to sell oil in their own currency. Uh, Libya was a good example of that. We destroyed the country and killed the leader because he was going to break that agreement that was made between the Arabs and the U.S. in 1971, I think it was, that no oil could be sold except with American dollars. Now, I don't know whether it's been explained exactly how this works, but so, they sell oil in other currencies. What does that mean to us? What it means is that we have had a credit card that has no limit on it and does not have to be paid back. If a country wanted to buy oil from Arabia or some other country, they had to buy dollars on the International Monetary Fund, or the SWIFT system is what they called it. They had to buy dollars before they could go buy oil. It's like if you come into this country and you have French francs in your wallet. Uh, you can't plug them in and just buy something. You have to go to an exchange and change them into dollars so you can spend dollars because nobody's going to want your French francs here. And the same is true with oil and the dollar. And that meant that nearly all trade in the U.S. or in the world went through on dollars, not just oil, but nearly everything else, because the countries that were receiving dollars wanted more dollars, and they wanted dollars for things other than oil. So we had a free credit card. The Fed could print all the dollars they wanted and give them to the world to buy oil with, and they in turn then would buy stuff from us with those dollars. So we were given free money and got to buy stuff with it. How would you like a deal like that? The U.S. has had that for years and years, decades. And that's why we are able to be so high above and so strong above all the other nations 
is because they couldn't live without U.S. dollars. Now what happens is the question for today. What happens when Saudi Arabia sells their oil for yuan or francs or any other currency? What happens is they will go to the the monetary exchange and they'll use their dollars to buy Chinese yuan, for instance, so they can buy oil or can sell oil to China. And China wants their currency, not dollars. China is selling off their dollars and getting rid of them as fast as they can. And by the way, we imported more things from Europe this year than we did from China. That's the first. So they're cutting back on their trade with us and getting rid of their American dollars. So they don't want Saudi Arabia uh, to use anything but their own currency. So, to buy oil now, people will go to the International Monetary Fund and buy Russian or Chinese money and use it in their transactions. Well, if they buy it with dollars, they exchange dollars for yuan, what happens to those dollars? The, Inter the International Monetary Fund returns them to us. They'll go back to the Fed, who printed them in the first place. So they come back on shore, and nobody wants them anymore, so we can't go buy anything with them. Our credit card has been shut off. And now we have to pay the piper. So we're going to have incredible inflation as this thing gets going more and more. Because you'll have all these dollars coming back and chasing fewer goods. Less things to buy and they'll cost a whole lot more. Wages won't go up anywhere near what the international oil market is, not anywhere near. So that's why I've been saying, and others have, that when the petrodollar is gone, we're done. And there have been amazing moves in that direction just lately in the last few months. And this one between Arabia and China is probably the biggest because the deal we made was mostly with the Arabs about the petrodollar, and other nations kind of had to follow along. So realize uh, things are getting pretty dire in terms of the financial collapse that God says is coming. This is just one more thing that shows that it's here, that it, it can't be ignored, it, it, it can't be pushed under the rug. Those dollars are coming home. And when they get here, they're going to cause a lot of trouble. But that's the process they go through. Anyway, let's get back to God's Word, because I couldn't tell you these things uh, that are happening and what they mean if I didn't get it out of here. Because this is the one place that I trust. Everything else, yeah, maybe, maybe not. But when there's an article that comes out that says censor, you know that's not one they want you to see, the, the big people. 
Anyway, we wound up at the end of chapter 26. These last two chapters have been going through the punishment that God is going to bring on various peoples. We started last week's sermon with Isaiah 24, which shows it's really going to come upon the whole earth, and the earth be made desolate and few men left. Then he goes through some more, uh, partly with Israel, I mean, the real Israel, not that little country in the Mideast, but the true Israelite people, including the U.S., and has one today that we'll get to about the U.S. And through there, though, there are snippets of blessings. Overall, the context is dire about the punishments God is going to bring. But here and there, he has little snippets to say, and I will bless, and I will take care of you. And there he's referring to those people who will obey him. This huge curse is coming on the whole world because of disobedience to God. That's why it's coming. So he's not going to make a difference for these sinners compared to these sinners. If they're sinners, doesn't matter where, the curse is coming. But if they will obey God, whoever they are, the blessing will come. And he shows that very, very, very few people will obey him and serve him, so the blessing will only come on a very, very few before its repentance comes and the millennium is here with Christ. So ahead of time, he's only going to bless a few. And we know that the ones that are blessed are the ones who are obeying him. So those scriptures in here, those little, you know, two or three verses that will say, but I'll bless you. It's referring to those who are obeying him because he's not going to bless anyone else. So if you are obeying God, those are talking to you. All of us worry a little bit because we know we're not obeying God as well as we should be. It's hard for a human being who by nature is selfish and vain and egotistical and has issues. Very difficult to direct that mind in a godly course. It just doesn't want to go that way. It wants to go this way. So we have to continually work at keeping it going the right direction. But the effort means something to God, and the amount of overcoming we do means something to God. Just contrast it from his viewpoint up here. Here's a city over here that's full of crime, cheating, lying, thieving, corporate sin, personal sin, adultery, fornication, bestiality, Abortion, <clears throat> perverted sex, I mean, just it's just full of it. And nobody seems to care that it's that way. And in fact, many are promoting it and want more sin. And they want to worship Satan. There's a lot of that going on. Now, God's sitting here seeing that, and then he sees a few people here who are working at keeping the Sabbath, working at, not lying, cheating, stealing, and all these things. How much contrast would there be from his viewpoint on us? 
I mean, we look at ourselves and say we fall short. Yes, we do. But we're trying and we're working in the right direction, and that means a lot to God. When he sees somebody praying to Satan and he sees somebody praying to him, that must make a lot of difference to him. So let's view it in that perspective sometimes instead of just poor little me. Uh, yeah, we're trying, we fall short. But that's why he tells us there in Matthew 24, watch and pray always that you be accounted worthy to be protected from all these things that are coming. Watch what? Mainly Scripture and God. Those are the main thing we need to watch so that we be accounted worthy. Accounted worthy is the key to that statement and that context. Knowing what the world is doing means very little in comparison, if you will. Knowing that San Francisco and all these cities and nations are going to the dogs means very little in comparison to where am I in relationship to God and where are we headed. Because the judgment of the world will mean nothing to us, but the judgment of God means everything. So being accounted worthy to escape is more important than worrying where all the escape routes could or might not be. Because there aren't any except God. So, yeah, we could watch. I need to do a study on that. All the contexts where those things are mentioned and show what it is that we are mainly to watch. Never lose sight of God is the bottom line. Uh, these other things we watch, like China and Arabia signing a deal, that's fine because it kind of shows that Scripture is being fulfilled. Good thing to know because that's encouraging. When I see bad news, I'm encouraged. When I see something like, looks like something's getting straightened out, it bothers me. Because I know that God says He is going to punish based on the evil that's going on. And he's going to bless based on the obedience that's going on. So, how did I do today compared to how did China do? There's no comparison. Because how we do enters into God's judgment about whether we'll be counted worthy to escape all this stuff that's coming. We know it's coming. There's no doubt. But are we going to escape it? That is the question. That is the primary question. So our relationship needs to be more with this book and our Father in Heaven than it is with the world and what's going on there. Yeah, keep an eye on it. It's affected by Scripture, but it isn't the key. The key is our focus on God and Him saying, I know you're not worthy. I know you still have sins and faults and problems and weaknesses, but through the sacrifice and the mercy of Christ and myself, we're going to account you worthy. Come on. That's the one I pray a lot is, I know I'm not worthy, please account me worthy. That's what, that's what it's really all about, because he's the judge. He makes all the final decisions. And I want to know 
the one that makes decisions in my life. Don't you? Isn't that the one we really need to know, is the one that makes decisions, whether I'm going to bless you or curse you, whether I'm going to raise you up and change you into spirit, or let you go into the lake of fire. Now, there's somebody I really need to know, and know well, because those are decisions that he can make and follow up on. Now, I can have leaders in Washington, if you want to call them that, and in other places in the New World Order, and Satan, they can promise me all kinds of things. Didn't Christ do that, do that with Satan? I mean Satan himself. Well, I'll give you this, and I'll do this for you, and you'll get along fine. Uh, just worship me, and everything will be good. Well, he turned from Satan in a hurry, and he put him in his place. And we have to do the same thing. Stay away from this world as much as we can and get as close to God as we can because Biden and Z and Putin don't have the say in my life. They don't. I've dedicated it to Christ and the Father and they're the ones who have the say in my life. Satan and Putin and Biden and all these people, whoever they turn out to be, are going to kill about 90% of the people on the face of the earth. They are going to do that. It says so right here. And my only hope is to have someone deliver me from that. So he's the one I want to know. He's the one I want to spend time with. He's the one I want to send my prayer of mercy before. I have not tried to contact Z or or uh, the Saudi king or anybody like that. I haven't even tried to contact them and say, you know, I like you, you're a good guy, and, and when you come over here, uh, here's my address, please be sure I'm protected. I haven't contacted them. not going to they hear what I say in here. They wouldn't pay a bit of attention to that anyway. They'd say, target that one. That's what they say. So, there you go. But God will also target those who will obey him, and he will protect them. The one one-sixty-eighth of the week is probably not enough contact with God. It takes a lot more than that in our personal lives. Anyway, let's get to chapter 27 while I have a little time left. Uh, In that day, the Eternal with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent. And he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea, that is, among the people. Now, Satan has been referred to in Scripture as the dragon. And in the book of Revelation, he is very prominent there as the dragon that is ruling over the beast and the false prophet. So, there is a dragon among the people of the earth, and that's Satan. And he is the ultimate target of God, because he causes more sin and hate and killing on the earth than anyone He'll be bound a thousand years and not be able to do that. So he is going to punish Satan. 
in that day sing you to her a vineyard of red wine. Now that just turns a different direction there, doesn't it? I'm going to punish the devil, the dragon among the people. And it says, in that day sing you to her a vineyard of red wine. A vineyard of red wine is a pretty good thing, isn't it? The eternal, I the eternal, do keep it. I will water it every moment. So this is a good uh, arbor of grapes, and God is going to take care of it and water it every moment. That doesn't sound like destruction. This is a good thing. Lest any hurt it, I will keep it night and day. Now if you go back to Isaiah 5, you read about his vineyard that he planted and how he would allow it to be destroyed and cut apart and it would receive curse. And that, on one level, is the church, which we saw just torn apart and burned. And it also refers to overall, all the nations of Israel who are now in the process of being gathered up and burned in Europe and here. Things are getting worse day by day and week by week. But he, out of that, is going to have a small people that he gathers, and he says, come drink wine and milk without money. He's going to take care of a very small vineyard and water it every day. Be sure it's taken care of. That's what I was just talking about. I want to be close to he who out of all this destruction of all the vineyards of the earth can take care of a little one and I want to be in that one. Because there's a great deal of damage being done in these chapters with these little snippets of I'll take care of those who turn to me. Fury is not in me. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them, I would burn them together. What do briars and thorns do? They help destroy your crop. You try to, ever since Cain killed Abel, well really ever since Adam and Eve sinned, that's when it was pronounced that they would have the briars and the thorns and work by the sweat of their brow to produce a crop. Now God's going to take care of his little vineyard and he's not going to allow the briars and thorns in there. But the briars and the thorns are going to try to take over. Well, he says, I'm going to take care of it. Who would turn against me in battle? You think these thorns and thistles mean anything? They're nothing compared to what I am. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. you got these briars and thorns that would either fight against God's people, that's what they're going to do. The beast and the false prophet will try, will take over Jerusalem and they will try to take over Zion and not be allowed to. And the two witnesses are going to try to kill for three and a half years. That will be their main object on earth is to kill those two for three and a half years. And they can't fight against God and get it done until God allows it at the end of that time. And then, yeah, they do it. So you can either fight God and his people as briars and thorns and he'll take care of you in a very nasty way. Or you could repent and take hold of his strength and make peace with God. 
but they won't. They just won't. He throws it out there and says, you can make peace with me if you desire to. Just repent. <coughs> but these scriptures show that isn't going to happen. Verse 6, he shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud until the face of the world with fruit. So instead of briars and thorns, there's going to be a fruitful vine and fruitfulness all over the earth. Now he's going to start with a very small group here before Christ returns and bless them as an example to the world. And then when he is here to rule the earth and build the millennium, it's going to start small because there won't be very many people left. But it will grow and grow and the fruit will cover the earth and there will be no more goat heads and no more tumbleweeds and no more foxtails and name a few others you don't like. They'll be gone. We'll blossom and bud and fill the face of the earth with fruit. Has he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? Does the world do to Christ what Christ is going to do to the world? What they did to him personally? He's not met in the world in the way that he is about to. He did in Noah's time because of the sin. He threatened a time or two since. And now he's going to do it because that's the only way to save them is kill them. That's what it's come to. The only way I can possibly save you down there on that earth is to kill you and start over. With Satan bound and Christ on earth and him on earth to rule over you in peace and love and safety and justice and security. No war, no problem. But that's the only way it can be done. So it's about to happen. And then all these people that are about to die are going to come up in a physical resurrection, a second resurrection, as Revelation 20 shows. And then, with a humbled attitude, they'll begin to serve him and obey him and be blessed. And a lot of them will be a part of the kingdom of God before it's done. So he has to do what he has to do in order to save us. I'm trying to save you here. You want to make peace? Nope. Nope. We'll do it our way. We'll do it Satan's way. We'll do it the way we get a chip and have a way to buy some food. That's the way we'll do it. And they're working on that one very rapidly right now. In this nation, as well as others, to get that digital dollar made so they can issue you some money to buy with and if they don't like the way you act, they'll just cut it off. And you can't buy or sell without it. God said, don't you dare take that. Don't you dare take that. And they started with a vaccination because people worship doctors and they worship medication, most of them. And that was a good place to get this whole thing instituted where everybody does it. Everybody got to wear a mask, I'll get a vaccination. And we went along with it. And now they're going to make financial trouble. And without this chip, no way to make a living, no way to work, no way to buy food. 
and it says the whole world will worship the beast and accept its mark, except the very, very few. And you know what they're going to do, those few who won't accept it? There are people out here in the Protestant patriot world who says, I won't take it, period. And some of them won't. But they're going to be killed. And only those who survive will be those who obey God, won't take it for the right reasons, and that he pulls aside and protects. Because if you're not protected, you will be killed. They're not going to put up with it for a second, anybody that won't go along with their system. They've made that very clear already. Anyway, uh, those few who obey him will blossom and fill the face of the earth with fruit. Verse 7, has he smitten him? Has he smote those that smote him? No. They smote him. They killed him. He hasn't done that yet. But is this leading up to it? You bet it is. Verse 8, in measure, when it shoots forth, you will debate with it. He stays his rough wind in the day of the east wind. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged, and this is all the fruit to take away his sin. So God is going to withhold total destruction so that he can bless Israel. Uh, when he makes all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder, the groves and images shall not stand up. Any form of worship other than worshiping God will not stand up. That was one of his big issues in the Old Testament was that get some things straightened out, a new king would come, and he'd be a good king overall. But he didn't tear down the groves. Well, the groves was where they did their satanic sex worship and all that kind of thing. Had trees in the forest that they cut the limbs off to make male um, figures. And that's where they worshiped. And the king would come in and he'd straighten this out and straighten that out. But, oh, can't touch the place they go worship Satan and sex. Can't do that. And he wouldn't. A few did. A few did. Yet the defense city shall be desolate and the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There shall the cast be and there shall he lie down and consume the branches thereof. So all of our military, all of our defense cities, he says, are going to be torn down. Even though God has not given us what we deserved yet, it's coming, and he's going to tear it all down. And where people live, there'll be a few animals that can eat what's left. When the boughs thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show them no favor. They're trying to survive. They're trying to make a fire out of these trees and do it their way. Try to survive their way without turning to God. That just brought to my mind the thought of I think I even mentioned it a week or two ago. That lady, that uh, the young widow, 
that Elijah came to when God sent him back over there. She only saw one solution. I'll take what little I have left, I'll make a little cake, and my son and I will eat it, then we're going to lie down and die because we're at the point of death through starvation. That to her was the only option, to lay down and die. So here comes Elijah in, and he says, hey, wait a minute, make me some food. I haven't eaten in a long time. And she kind of makes an excuse and says, we were going to just eat this and die. That's all we have. And he says, well, that's all right. Just make me a little bit, and then you can go ahead and do your thing. Well, the grain never went away. The oil stayed, and she cooked and fed herself and her son and Elijah for at least a year. It may have been as many as three years there. Hard to tell from what he says exactly, but he stayed in her house, and all three of them ate. Now, what a beautiful story that is, that people are running out of options. So they'll go and try to cut down some trees and make a little fire and try to find something to eat, and it won't be there. The only answer that young widow had, other than death, was God. Because it wasn't Elijah that puffed up the wheat and the oil every night. It was God that caused that barrel never to run empty, or the oil vials to never run empty. And she suspected that Elijah was from God. She wasn't totally convinced. And then when her son got sick and died, literally died, Elijah took him upstairs, asked God, and God revived him, and she brought her son back down and handed him to her. And she says, now I know you were a servant of God. She kind of had to know by the fact that there was always something to eat, but she wasn't totally convinced until she saw her son resurrected. What a powerful story. And here at the end, I think that's one of the reasons he used the Elijah figure from back there and Moses other than someone else. It's because by the power of God, a very few people, a widow and her son, were saved out of that great drought that went on. I'm sure other people survived it one way or another, but it was a terrible time. And only God could save her, her son, and Elijah himself, and bring her son back from the dead. God is going to do all those things again here at the end. That story is not over. God brings Moses and Elijah forward in the book of Malachi, and again at the Transfiguration, and in other places, to show that the events that they were involved in will happen again. So he's going to save a very small people and provide them food for everybody else starving to death. A very small people. He's going to do it. And I hope that we can be among them. We can be, if we just do our part. So, these people will not have any understanding. They're just doing what they can to try to stay alive. 
and they're not truly seeking God. And it even says up here, we just read it, that we could take hold of God and try to make peace, but we won't do it. So then we go out and try to find a way to survive on our own. Can't do it. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall beat off from the channel of the river to the stream of Egypt, and you shall be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. He's going to bring from north, south, east, and west, he says, in other places, um, when it gets this dire. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Eternal in the holy mount at Jerusalem. That's a small group first, the church, and then a bigger group as he brings Israelites out of where they've been in slavery and captivity through the three and a half years. So both threads there, the church being protected and Israel being protected where they were about to die, wherever they were taken captive when the U.S. comes down and the rest of Europe and so on. Then he gets specific here in chapter 28 with this nation per se. Woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. Now, we looked upon our nation as gorgeous beauty, did we not, throughout most of our lives? And other peoples did, too. They wanted to come here, the American dream, the glorious beauty. And now we see a fading flower. Every part of our society is coming apart and being diminished. We're, life is just getting harder and worse every day that goes by. So it perfectly fits us. Which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Uh, it says a little later over here that our leaders and people are drunk but not on wine. Now he uses the analogy of getting drunk with alcohol, but it's a different kind of drunkenness. What's the point of the, the analogy with the drunk? The drunken has no sense at all. He can barely stand up, if he can stand up. And the most positive thing he can do is puke up the alcohol he drinks. That's about as good as he gets, if he drinks that much. So he's saying that it's like you got a whole nation that is just drunk. They can't find any answers. They can't accomplish anything. They can't do anything. Can you imagine going into a bar and you've got 30 drunks there? And you say, you people look really intelligent. You'll have to have a little air of sarcasm, I think, to say that. But you people look really intelligent. And you've been sitting there drinking and solving the world's problems. They refer to it that way. We've been having a few drinks and solving the problems of the world. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to set up this little table over here, and I'm going to sit behind it, and I'm going to employ you people to actually solve the problems of the world. I want you to come up with a plan to solve our problems. Now, how's that going to come out? Not the same way it was when they were sitting at the bar solving the world's problems on their own and getting nowhere. 
So he refers to people and our nation as like a bunch of drunks trying to accomplish something. It's just not going to happen. And our glorious beauty as a country is fading fast. And we are at the head of the fat valleys. Haven't we been the most prosperous nation on earth? Sure have. Fat valleys had plenty, had everything we needed. Now when the petrodollar goes, <laughs> that's going to dry up real fast. Not only that, these drunks are also destroying food processing plants all across the country. They're cutting down the amount of fertilizer that can be produced. They're cutting down the amount of diesel that farmers can use to run tractors. These drunks are destroying our country. Everybody in Washington, D.C., I believe, I haven't interviewed everyone, but just about everybody there is just as drunk as they can be on power, on money, on sex, on all the things that those people want. That's what they're after. They're overcome with stupid drunkenness. Behold, the Eternal has a mighty and strong one, which has a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing shall cast down to the earth with the hand. So God says you're so stupid drunk in the things that you're doing. I'm going to take care of that. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet. That's speaking of this nation. It's going to be trodden under foot. Now, if you have racing of the bulls over in Spain, they turn them loose, and you're standing in the way as people get there so they can be entertained. If you're not real careful, you're going to get run over and trodden under the feet of many bulls. And if you're in a movie place, and a fire breaks out, or a bar, and there's not enough room at the exit, people get trodden underfoot. Because there's mass hysteria when trouble comes that they're not expecting. Drunkard doesn't expect trouble, does he? I'm sitting here, I'm having my wine or my whiskey or whatever it is that I'm drinking, and life's pretty good. And right down at the bottom of this bottle, I'm going to find peace and happiness that I've been seeking. And he keeps trying, bottle after bottle, and... He hadn't got the right bottle quite yet. He hadn't found it down there, but he keeps trying. It's kind of the way we are. But we'll be trodden under feet. The glorious beauty which is on the head of the fat valley shall be a fading flower, and as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he that looks upon it sees, while it is yet in his hand, he eats it up. There won't be a whole lot left, and that which you can get hold of, you eat as fast as you can, because it's quickly disappearing. In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty to the residue of his people. There's a small residue of people in this nation, Ephraim, that God is going to bless and take care of. Does it seem like I keep repeating this over and over and over? Yeah, because God just keeps repeating it over and over and over. 
And it doesn't matter where you go in this book, it's the same story over and over and over. You know what the beauty of that is? All these authors of these 66 books agree perfectly on everything that's going to happen. So you read this one back here, it tells you what's going to happen. Go to back to Deuteronomy. Blessings and cursings chapter. Tells you what's going to happen. Go into Psalms. Tells you what's going to happen. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of them tell you exactly what's going to happen. And they repeat it over and over and over again. Go to the New Testament and Christ tells you what's going to happen and repeats it over and over again. He wants us to get the message and do something about it. And he'd like for the world to get the message, but they won't even look at it. But it's all in here. And you know what? Almost no one understands it. Almost no one. They have no idea that Genesis and Revelation agree perfectly together. Now you've seen us go through this entire book. Over and over. And it's the same story wherever we turn. It's the same story. Only God could have caused those men from different thousands of years apart coming up with the exact same story. Couldn't happen any other way. Look at the music of the world. You have different periods. You have the classical period, and you had the big band area more recently, and then you had rock and roll start, and you had rap come on. And you can't look at the music world from Genesis to Revelation or from man's history and see the same thing, same story. Now, the story is completely different from era to era of music. And people who grew up in this era like this, and they don't like what came since. And the people that came since don't like what was before. And some people from the Netherlands just laughed when I talked to them about music, good music that's being played by one of the people in the Netherlands. Oh, some people listen to them. Aren't they Bach or something like that? Have no idea and don't want to know because they got their rappers and their fools. It's just gotten worse and worse. Music, everything has degenerated error. I'll bet it sounds nothing like what David played on his instrument. I look forward to hearing truly God-inspired good music. We have some that's fairly inspiring today. We use it for special music, and we sing the hymns, which are just Scripture put to music. Some of it he wrote better than others. Uh, some of them are really inspiring, and some of them are kind of not as good. But he did the best he could, and for us, it's probably the best thing we can do. At least it's God's work, not just man's work. But where are you going to find truth? Just among the residue, just a few. Verse 6, And for a spirit of judgment to him that sits in judgment, and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. Now, turning the battle to the gate means that the whole city has been attacked. 
and they've overrun the walls. And finally, they're starting to come in through the gate. They've battered it down, whatever, and now they're going to pour in through the gate. So the most brave, the most courageous, the strongest, head to the gate to defend the city. That's what it means to turn the battle to the gate. It's away from the walls, it's too late. Let's go to the gate and confront them straight on, head on, and see if we can beat them that way. It's the last ditch attempt, if you will, for those who hang on. Now, what did Christ tell us to do? Endure to the end, so that we can be there and receive his blessing. Endure to the end. Well, that means you're the ones who turn the battle to the gate. When Satan and the beast and the false prophets come after God's people, we are to stand and turn the battle to the gate. And he's going to send the two out to confront the world, lest they take over and destroy that residue that God has kept. So he uses that analogy here. But they also have erred through wine and through strong drink or out of the way. The priests and the prophets have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. Uh, Alcohol used improperly can be bad doctrine, bad teaching. Used properly can be good teaching. This depends on how it's used. And here he's talking about people who don't know anything, don't intend to know anything, and they're just doing what comes natural to them. We'll see that in just a moment. They're swallowed up of wine, bad teaching, bad thinking. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision, they stumble in judgment. Well, I already described the drunk who staggers around and can't get anything right and wouldn't know his own car from someone else's or his own wife from someone else's. And on and on it goes. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there is no place clean. Your whole society is just full of filth. How else to say it? Whom shall he teach knowledge? How are you going to find somebody who can teach knowledge? Just like this guy that called me for service today. He has all the answers. He doesn't really want me to give him any answers. He wants to tell me what I need to do to help him set up the kingdom of God on earth. That's his goal and purpose. Thankfully, I could say, I've got to go to a meeting. Or I might have really told him off. Who is he going to teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. In other words, somebody that's grown up enough to pay attention. They're not just totally young, but they've been weaned. Should be beginning to think somewhere beyond just num-num. For precept must be upon precept, precepts upon precepts, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. Now, didn't Christ speak in parables, and he said so himself, so that they could not understand and would be taken and snared and deceived? He was quoting Isaiah 28 when he said that. 
Because he didn't want to give people information that if they did not accept and abuse, he would have to punish them for. So don't let them understand in the first place. If you you want truth, you're going to find it here a little, there a little, this line, that line, one precept, another precept. You're not going to just reveal it all to them all at once. To whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. So, what are the witnesses going to do out before the whole world? Tell them, if you will obey God, you can make peace with God, and he will give you all these blessings that those people in Zion have, that you can see, and you can see that they have everything they need, and all you have to do is repent, but they would not hear. They will not hear. They'll have the beast system, and they'll have their little chip that gives them money to buy food. It is the money to buy food every month. And they'll be so tied to that, they're like a breastfed child. Can't get away from it. And they're weaned and begin to grow up. So they will be like little babies sucking on the beast and the false prophet, what it amounts to. They won't hear. But the word of the Eternal was to them precept on precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, for the purpose that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Falling over backward is a sign of the influence of Satan. So God has hidden the truth so that they might not understand, but that it might be snared and taken for their own good, ultimately. Because if they understood now and did not obey, they would have to be cursed eternally. And God doesn't want to do that to them. He wants them to be saved before this is all done. Wherefore, hear the word of the eternal, you scornful men, that ruleless people which is in Jerusalem or in Israel, that includes this country. Listen. But it'll just be here a little, there a little, and you won't get it because you're scornful men. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Doesn't that sound like the elite of the world today? They made a covenant with death. Many of them are outrightly worshiping Satan. They have these signs that they use, covering one eye, covering an eye totally, wearing a hat or some hair down over one eye. They're doing that to show their allegiance to Satan the devil. And every president we've had recently has made those signs in public, on purpose, and in posed photographs. They worship Satan the devil. You see it coming out of Hollywood all the time. And they're getting more and more open about it. Luciferians. They're coming out of the woodwork. So, Isaiah is just as today as you can get. 
This was written thousands of years ago, and it is telling us what we're observing every day as we go through life and watch the news. They've hidden themselves under lies, and they think that the underground bunkers are going to save them. And on and on it goes. Well, what does God have to say about that? They made a covenant with the devil, with death and hell. They think that Satan is going to take over and rule the earth and rule it well, and they'll be saved. Not only that, they're making technological advances now to the point that we can have our brains replaced and withdraw ourselves a new one in the lab, and on and on it goes, and save our bodies even, because we grow new parts in the lab. Come on. Who made us? Who can heal us? Who can fix us? Who can feed us good food that will make us live and be healthy? And who's feeding us stuff that's killing us? But they're not going to listen. Therefore, thus says the Eternal, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, tried, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believes shall not make haste. We don't have to run. We don't have to hurry. even tells us there in Isaiah 52 to come out to the wilderness, but not to come in haste, because I'm going to give you time to get there ahead of the uh, Assyrian army. We get worried. Oh, we're going to make it in time. No, he said, don't make haste. I will give you opportunity. And you'll, have, you'll be able to get, stay ahead of the northern army, and you'll make it. So, he will help, and we'll make it. I'm not worried about those people out there. I'm not worried about my relatives. If God chooses to call them and bring them here, he'll get them here. He knows how. So, it's not my worry. I don't have to go beat on their door and say, you better get out here because this is the only safe place. You better come on. And all that does is make them plant their feet and not come. That's all it does. It makes them stubborn. Because who are we to say this is the only place? Come on. <coughs> Just because the Bible says it. But it is. But how are we going to convince them? It says they won't listen. You can tell them a little here. You can tell them a little there. You can give them a line here and a line there. And I'm going to listen. But Ephesians 2.20, New Testament, Christ has laid the chief cornerstone. He that believes shall not make haste. He'll get the job done. But he's not going to panic. He's not going to be scared witless. He's going to do it in an organized and proper manner because God is with him. Judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. That's speaking there of ultimately Christ, but ahead of time of the rubber bell who has the line in his hand and the plummet to measure righteousness, uprightness. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. So wherever they hide, it won't matter. He tells them, you go down in the deep, I'll find you. You climb the mountain, I'll find you. And so on. 
and your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. You thought you had it made worshiping the devil. Isn't going to work. Hope worships the devil. He's Luciferian. All these people are. Some of them know it, some of them don't know it. But they're following the teachings of Satan. But God's going to undo all that. He's going to bind Satan, and he's going to kill most people, and then he's going to say, let's talk. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, you will be trodden down by it. He's still talking to Ephraim here, us, this country. From the time that it goes forth, it shall take you, for morning by morning shall it pass over, by day and by night, and it shall be a vexation only to understand the report. Just hearing about things going on will be vexatious to these people. For the bed is shorter than a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower than he that can wrap himself in it. You ever feel cold and you didn't, your blanket just wasn't big enough? You pull it over here to get this side warm and it jerks off your back? That's a miserable feeling. Or the bed's too short. I haven't suffered that too many, but tall people do a lot. Get your feet hanging right off the end. It's not very comfortable, I don't imagine. As God says, that's the way life's going to be. Too short a bed and too small a blanket. Kind of a silly little analogy, but it's practical. Makes sense. For the Eternal shall rise up as in Mount Perizim. He shall be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. It is a strange thing to people to hear what God is going to do. To understand his plan to ultimately save mankind, and all Israel, as he says in Romans 11:26, and most of the Gentiles. For somebody to stand up and say to a group of people, you're, you're impossible. There's only one way to deal with you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to kill you all, and then I'm going to resurrect you, and say, now you're going to listen? And a lot of you will begin to say, I think I'll listen. I don't want to go through that again. That's what he has to do. That's a strange act. That's a strange plan. But he has the power and the capacity to make it work. Now, one of these dictators on this earth say, I'm going to kill you all and bring you back. You can say, good luck with that. You may can kill us, but I can't see you bringing us back because he can't. But God can. And he knows that's the only way to get people to listen and he's talking about our nation here. There's no way to get us to listen without killing most of us. And the rest will begin to think, hmm. Verse 22, Now therefore be you not mockers, for God will not be mocked, is the scripture. Test your bands to be made strong, for I have heard from the eternal God of hosts a consumption even determined upon the whole earth. This is coming. You better strengthen yourself against it, because it's going to be a big deal. Give you ears, 
and hear my voice, hearken and hear my speech. If I were to get on television today and read this chapter to people in this nation, how would it be received? Our nation's fading, it's going under, we're going into captivity. All of your good things are going to be taken away from you, you're going to lose all your houses, and they are. Even with the mortgage rate going up a little bit, there are hundreds of thousands of houses that are now underwater, um, worth less than there is owed on them. But even yet today, tell them our country has had it, we're going to be taken over by the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, and everybody that joins with them. We're going to be destroyed completely. I'm sure that whatever channel that was on would just be absolutely deluged with listeners and people saying, oh, I want to hear more of that. Give me a break. You might get three people listening. I'd be about they just are not going to listen to God's Word. I don't care who says it. Does the plowman plow all day to sow? Does he open and break the clods of his ground? When he has made plain the face thereof, does he not cast abroad the fishes and scatter the cumin and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rice in their place? Does the farmer go out and take care of his land and then plant it? Yeah, does. For his God does instruct him to discretion and does teach him. There are many proverbs in the Bible that talk about taking care of your flocks and your herds and your the things you plant and not being lazy and saying, I go to work, but I'm sure there's a lion in the street that would eat me if I was left for work. God instructs in discretion and teaches. For the fishes are not threshed with a threshing instrument, Neither is the cartwheel turned upon the cumin, but the pitches are beaten out with a staff and the cumin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it nor break it with the wheel of his cart nor bruise it with his horsemen. In other words, they're going to plant, they're going to think everything's going to be okay, but their crop will be destroyed and they'll never be able to harvest. This also comes forth from the eternal of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. If they just listened, their crop would be preserved. But we will not listen. We're just a nation of drunks, drunk on our own wealth, drunk on our own egos, and being the finest in the world. And we're about to be destroyed. And that's the end of it and the crops will not be harvested. Do you see it coming? We have a diesel shortage. We have a transportation shortage. We have processing plants being destroyed by fire all around us. We have the electrical grid being attacked now seven times in the last few weeks, here and there. you think we're going to keep harvesting? No, we're going to go into total confusion like a drunk trying to farm. And he don't get very far. And we're going to die a third of us of famine and pestilence, not having crops. And a third by war, and a third taken captive, and a sword sent after them. 
That is what is happening, beginning to happen in our nation. Some of these things are already there and they're being increased very rapidly as we sit here today. Who knows what the news for tomorrow and the next day will be because it's all trended that direction and they're not going to listen. It can't be stopped. That's a real pleasant place to stop. That's what's coming to us.